This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Welcome to Pass the Mic. I was about to say greetings and God bless, but I feel like I'm stepping on Tyler's toes when I do that. Uh, Welcome to Pass the Mic. I am your producer and uh, stand-in host, Bo York. With me, as always, at least more often than not anyway, is uh, your co-host, Mr. Jamar Tisby. How you doing, Jamar? I'm, I'm, I'm doing. I'm doing well. It's one of those deals where you know, you're gone for a little bit and then you get back to the real world and it's like a bucket of cold water when you're sleeping. Just kind of shocking. <laughs> well, I'm here. I'm awake. I'm I'm gonna do my best. As folks can uh, can kind of hear, you are actually uh, you're you're here in call form only. You're actually calling in from uh, uh, from the school at which you work. And so, I, actually, when you called in, I just made a joke about how it sounds like you're in a conference room, and I was not wrong. You're absolutely right. Well, I'm in my office, and it's all glass, which. It's kind of cool looking. However, it's one of those deals. Well, you just heard a door slam, but it's one of those <laughs> deals where like people can always see you. So they always assume you're available. And uh, it's, yeah. it's kind of annoying like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, see, we need to get you if, if you're going to keep on doing this, then we need to get you a noise canceling foam on the walls. And then you can have one of those on air signs that I've got up here at the studio. Naturally, that's exactly what a middle school principal needs in his office. <laughs> hey, man, I was I was just talking to somebody from uh, from the public city uh, or public school board uh, last night, even about how schools need podcasting programs. I mean, if you're gonna have uh, if you're gonna have like you know school papers, uh, podcasting programs, essentially like the school having its own little radio station. So anyway, you know that I'm on board with totally uh, as, <laughs> as for in my office. That's that's what we'll have to work. Around. Fair enough. Well, man, of course, like you said, you are back in town. Of course, this last past week, you were at T4G uh, as you were letting people know up until uh, this week when uh, when you guys were out there. And I guess did, besides yourself, do we have any other representation from uh, from Rand? Yeah, we actually have pretty good RAN rep- representation in terms of sort of the the background folks who are critically important but may not get as much of um, the attention they deserve. So we had several board members there, Trulia Newbell, uh, Ligon Duncan, and then a new board member, John Richards, who listeners may re- remember, he's he's written quite a bit for the, the blog at rennetwork.org, and he was our managing editor for a time until he got a different job that actually paid real money. So <laughs> he has graciously decided to continue to contribute his gifts and skills in a different capacity. So we were all there, as well as Brian Galt, who... Um, is another board member. Who was the headliner this year? So T4G is called Together for, it stands for Together for the Gospel, if folks don't know. It started about 10 years ago, and it has grown to 10,000 people. We were in the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky, and they packed out the arena area. It was amazing. And so it started basically as a pastor's fellowship. So, so these guys, there's probably... Eight, nine, ten of them are, you know, everyone from Al Moeller, Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, David Platt, several others are just friends 
in in the real world, in real life, and they kind of spur each other on to love and good works. And they wanted to put that on display because they felt like being a, a, a pastor is a lonely job. Uh, there are very few people in the local church you can confide in because you're trying to shepherd them and disciple them. And so they need peers um, to help them kind of stay accountable, to encourage them when they get discouraged, those kinds of things. So they wanted to put their friendship on display. So there's no single headliner is the long way of answering that question. <laughs> All of them have a plenary session and then there are a few breakout sessions. Okay, great. Uh, you know, I know that you felt, uh, you know, going into this, I think you were, you were pretty uh, uh, open on mic about, you know, how you've, you've got uh, this great opportunity to speak that was also somewhat nerve wracking for you. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's less, you know, like speaking in front of an audience and it's more about the particular topic. So of course I've frequently called on to talk about issues of race and you just never know what you're walking into. So I've been in groups where everybody's on board, rah, rah, we want more, just, just help us, you know, give us some practical tips, help us figure it out. Um, I've been in groups where it's a hostile group where they were, you know, basically the opposition is that talking about race in the church, you're bringing in a social issue and it's not a gospel issue. Uh, it's not, it's not a biblical way of thinking through these things. And so there's a lot of pushback. And then most of the time there's a mixture of both with a lot of people in the middle who aren't quite sure what to think, but are starting to understand that I need to learn more about this. So that's always the gamble <laughs> going into it. And especially because this was my first T4G and didn't have a sense uh, from prior experience what the audience was like. Mm -hmm. It was interesting actually watching your Facebook, seeing the pictures posted. I, 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 I had kind of an idea just from the way that you were describing things, but I mean, it was a massive conference. Massive, very huge. Um, because the, the, the folks who are plenary speakers are, are very well known. And so that's always kind of the tension. So, so it's this really neat event that brings together thousands upon thousands of pastors, literally, literally from around the world. I mean, there are people from um, all over North America, including Canada and South America, but there are all folks from Europe. Um, I think there was even someone from Turkey. We had some folks come in from a church in Dubai, brought a group. So it's, it's this amazing event that brings together all kinds of people for the gospel. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a very biblically faithful, encouraging, challenging time in the Word. At the same time, it's, it's, it's kind of the best and the worst of this, kind, this Christian celebrity phenomenon. So the reason it's so big is because all these men have platforms and you, you, you just, my heart is heavy for them because the burden they bear, not only being pastors and theologians, but to do all of this in public. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very difficult to persevere all the way through and not fall due to some moral failure or just even burnout. Uh, so I'm very thankful, actually, that these men who have been such a great influence on so many people have each other as peers to, you know, kind of lift one another up. Before we dive into uh, your, your uh, session specifically, I wanted to kind of ask you about uh, some of the marketing that, that kind of came before this T4G. You know, we've got this uh, banner that I'm sure many folks have actually seen in the, in the last few weeks, and I know we've posted it up on RAN, but it says, you know, we are Protestant uh, with very, <laughs> very intentionally uh, 
uh, highlighting the we and protest and Protestant. Um, what's kind yes. of, you know, there, I feel like there's a lot of implications that go around that uh, in terms of the marketing campaign leading up to this particular uh, T4G. But but what do you feel is kind of the, the mindset that drove that particular marketing campaign leading up to this particular T4G? Well, it's it's coming right up on the heels of the 500-year anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. Now, of course, you know, there's all kinds of events leading up to what we call the historic Reformation. So how can you pin one date on it? But um, I think it's referring to um, 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church doors in uh, Wittenberg. And so that, that's next year. And of course, T4G is every other year. So this was going to be the, the appropriate time to kind of acknowledge the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And I think um, the, the whole theme, we protest or we are Protestant, is just going back to the roots of uh, the Bible as we understand it is in the Protestant tradition which began with this historic movement. So they were hearkening back to that. And then all throughout the conference, they're, you know, basically going back to first principles. Is the Protestant Reformation still happening? Are those issues and concerns still relevant? What were those issues and concerns? So on and so forth. All right. So your your specific breakout session was called uh, The Arc of Racial Reconciliation. Uh, otherwise known as acronyms can be fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, it was my first, it was amazing. It was amazing to, to be able to present at T4G. Obviously I wasn't a plenary speaker, but it was one of the breakout sessions that it didn't have a ton of breakout sessions. So uh, it was really an honor to be able to, to participate in this. And so my presentation was part of a larger presentation that I, I did with Ligon Duncan and, um, the the name of it was the Reformation and Racial Reconciliation. So he did about half and I did about half. And his part was amazingly transparent and brutally honest about how not only the reformers, but lots of theologians since then have completely missed it when it came to issues of race and justice. Mm. And um, his basic point was the issue was not truly with the doctrine. We have a doctrine of man or um, a theological anthropology that says all people are created in the image and likeness of God and thus worthy of dignity. And there's so much great writing about that particular doctrine as well as ecclesiology, uh, you know, the, the doctrine of the church and lots of other topics that would, if you just read them, make clear, well, of course, people of different races and ethnicities are all welcoming the household of God, not just in a general way, but but we should be rubbing elbows with these people. We should be breaking down barriers. They should be in our congregations to the extent possible, given our geographic location. Um, and yet that wasn't the case because many folks who held to reform theology were themselves racist. They were slaveholders. Uh, more recently during you know, eras like the civil rights era, they were, they were passive or complicit or explicitly in support of continued race-based segregation. So what Dr. Duncan was trying to say was, um, in spite of this really robust doctrine and theology that we get from the Bible, it was a failure of application. And a lot of that failure of application was due to a fear of man. Um, it was also due to a love of comfort 
over uh, the sacrifices that following Christ mm. would would make. And so coming from coming from him, that means a lot because he's he's a I think eighth or ninth generation Southern Presbyterian. Uh, grew up in in South Carolina, was the pastor of the historic First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, and so in many ways he's the most unlikely person to to admit some of those things, um, and he even had some of his own confessions uh, to make. And so I really appreciate his transparency, and I think coming from him, it's even more powerful. That's good, man. All right, so the acronym here. <laughs> Yes, the arc of racial reconciliation. So he did the first part. I did the second part. And I even said in the talk, like, I was aware that I might be perpetuating a very unhelpful stereotype, which is, you know, you get the white guy up there to talk about the theology and the academic side. And then you you have the black guy follow and talk about the the application or the practical side. Jamar, fail, 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 fail. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I said said that and I said, you know, I can go on the theology side and I pulled some of that out. Um, but it just, it it just worked with the flow of it. Mm. And by the way, Dr. Duncan can do a heck of a lot on the practical side too. So, so let's bust up those categories. You need to flip the switch Um, next time. You know, we can, we can, we can (laughs) easily do that. And, uh, I think if you look at the RAND blog and then of course, some of the topics we've addressed on past the mic, I hope we've displayed, um, some, some, some diversity of skills here in terms of what we can address. And let me also say this while I'm on a soapbox anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the reason why you see so much stuff about race and racism on the Reformed African American Network and this podcast is because, number one, it is in a new way, in a renewed way, part of the national conversation again, mm. I would argue. Mm. Um, I would argue that that you could divide 21st century race relations into pre-Ferguson and post-Ferguson. Um, now, there's all kinds of events, everything from 9-11 to, to the Trayvon Martin shooting that, that contribute to this. But that was really a watershed moment in terms of the national conversation. When Ferguson happened, the country, again, started to focus on issues of race like they, they hadn't before. And so... We focus a lot on racial issues because that's where the country is right now. And so it's frequently a topic in the news and entertainment and sports in law enforcement, all of that. And number two, what I found before we started, Rand, was that the common outlets, whether online or print publications or whatever you have, did not address race often, often enough, in my opinion, uh, because as, a, as an African-American, I'm confronted with race every day, whether I want to think about it or not, whether it's images in the media, comments that people make about me, whatever it might be, my reality is is always touched in some way by race so that every day I'm aware of it. And, and yet, um, within that reality, I wasn't finding outlets that were reformed in nature that were really covering it. So I say all that to say, if not here, <laughs> then where? Mm. And we want to be that platform. Now, that's not all we want to address. So folks listening, we would love ideas and posts and questions about immigration, about abortion, about the family, about ministry, discipleship, anything along those lines. But I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> that's good. I think it was a couple episodes back. I think it was a Kimini, but it may have been Tyler who said... 
you know, the, this idea that, that racial topics, especially when dealing with things like social justice, you know, this idea that that has to be kept away from the gospel. And that's a conversation that only the kind of the secular outlets are able to have is, yes. is preposterous. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the gospel is big enough. And I think I want to say it was you, who said it, but it may have been Tyler. That's yeah, you're right. You're right. It was a Kimini, And I believe she's absolutely right. Listen, our theology is robust, which, which means a couple of things. One, it's expansive. So it's going to cover every topic. And two, it's strong enough to handle it. Mm-hmm. And so Kimini's point on that podcast was why have we ceded this topic to non-Christians right. and, and in doing so, why does it become sort of, forbidden for us to bring it up without being accused of, you know, going, becoming theologically liberal or something like that. Uh, I think that's a valid point. All right. So getting back to that acronym, man, I got to know what it means. I got to know what it means. ARC, the ARC of racial reconciliation. ARC stands for awareness, relationships, and commitment. Awareness, relationships, commitment. And what I argue is that, and not that these all take place in some sort of linear process, you go from one to another to another, but that all elements are present in any genuine reconciliation. Mm. And so you can even think back to your own conversion, how you came to know Christ. Uh, at some point, you became aware of the content of the gospel message, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That was probably mediated through some kind of a relationship, whether that was a parent or a youth pastor or a friend or whomever. You not only heard it from someone, but you saw it lived out. There was someone who, in one way or another, gave credibility to the gospel message. And then finally, you made a commitment. Now, that commitment could have been sort of a gradual process, and you can't even identify one single point where you made a decision or something, or it could have been a very dramatic moment that you can remember time and place and what you were doing and what happened. But either way, every Christian at some point has had to say, this is true. I believe it. I'm going to commit myself to it and make choices in light of it, which, you know, you may have become a pastor because of it. You may have gone to seminary. You may have decided uh, to, to stay at home and raise children. All kinds of commitments come out of that uh, that moment. But in vertical reconciliation with God, the same is true of horizontal reconciliation with neighbor. Um, so I simply was saying that if we want to work towards racial reconciliation, we need to have an awareness of racial dynamics, and particularly in the area of the racial history of the United States. Uh, I wrote a post a while back on, it was called The Master Narrative, The Master Narrative, and basically is saying the master narrative in regards to the historic civil rights movement is extremely simplistic. It amounts to Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and the end of segregation. Now we can sort of say, you know, wipe our hands and we're finished with the, the, the racial issues project. Uh, there's way more to it than that. And it, unless we go back and look at the history and see how deep this stuff runs and how subtle it is, how it permeates everything. Uh, I really like the phrase that Michael Emerson and Christian Smith use in Divided by Faith. They call it living in a racialized society um, as opposed to racist or, or, or racism. They say racialized because so much of what we do and say and think is filtered through a racial lens. Wow. So we got to understand those dynamics in terms of awareness. Is this something that you've kind of thought about for a while or, or how did you kind of choose this as the approach? 
I have been thinking about this for about two years now, and yeah. I've written probably you know three or four blog posts that I never actually published because I just it, it just didn't feel like the right time. This felt like the right time because I was trying. What I've sensed, even since 2011, when Rand first got going, is a movement of the spirit to where there's been a combination of events and factors, but there is more of a hunger and a desire and an even openness now to issues of race and, and reconciliation. And it's not that people were really hostile to it per se before, but it was just like, you know, yeah, it's important. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. Now it, it's, it's a little bit more urgent. It's not as urgent as I want it to be, certainly not with particular individuals or churches, but you know, at an event like T4G where we had this, I mean, the room was filled to capacity and the presentation was one hour long, but I stayed out for, I, I stayed for another two hours answering questions. I mean, there was a line oh, wow. and people just had these incredibly unique providential situations and they're trying to navigate it biblically and work toward racial diversity and racial justice. And they just had you know, there was there was no pushback really, and it was just a hunger and a curiosity. How do we do this well? So, I've been very encouraged by that, and I'm by no means saying that it's enough <laughs> or or we've arrived, but it is a different climate than than even just four or five years ago. I was really trying to be practical um, in a group like this. I'm hoping I was correct in assuming that they kind of understood the biblical framework. So yeah. if I'm coming into a group where they've never really broached this topic in a formal way, my first presentation isn't really on all the practical how-tos. My first presentation is that this is not simply a social issue. It is social. It has social implications. But this is a gospel issue. The gospel is about reconciliation, reconciliation with God and reconciliation with neighbor. And so if we are reconciled to God, then we must pursue reconciliation with our neighbor across racial, ethnic, economic, gender, and all kinds of lines. And, you know, there's the verse, I think, in Colossians, of how can you say you love God but hate your brother? And the, the argument I made in the presentation was that hate isn't always overt. Hate isn't always calling names or putting signs over drinking fountains. Hate mm. is indifference. And so if we are indifferent to the needs and the struggles of our brothers and sisters uh, in, in, in the flesh or in the faith, then that is a form of hate. And, and especially in the United States context where racism has been such a big issue, uh, how can we not as Christians be concerned about it because it affects so many people so negatively? And I don't just mean African-Americans. Racism affects People in the majority, too, because you lose out on the beauty and the joy of diversity. You become trapped in a prison of your own prejudices. And in order to bust out of that, you got to bust through the barriers that are dividing us. And it affects everyone negatively. So, you know, we, 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 we got to be concerned with this. Um, and I get it. Everybody's got a different calling. Your calling might be adoption. Your calling might be, you know, just pastoring the local church. But but let's not treat issues of race and reconciliation as peripheral. Uh, let's treat it as part and parcel of what we do. You know, you mentioned earlier just the um, the I would say the sin, if if not the struggle, or the struggle if not the sin that the church has had with comfort. Um, yes, we you know we, especially in America, specifically talking talking about the church in America, we we've become you know very somewhat complacent, uh, just comfortable. 
we way too comfortable to the point at which, you know, we, anything that disrupts that comfort is it's, it, why, why would we do that? We like our, uh, we like to sit back and we like kind of the world to be as we see it. And if it's kind of in this one little bubble then that's fine because we're comfortable. Um, and I, I, you know, and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast when you've had me on before, but I mean, I think that's a, a huge problem. You know, but it, but it also talks to this idea of racial reconciliation, right? It's uncomfortable. Um, you know, they, didn't we didn't we have racial reconciliation? That wasn't that that was a civil rights done check mark. It's yes, it's over. Exactly. Uh, but I think what hopefully and and maybe you can speak to this more. You know, from uh, your speaking engagements and, and just the reactions. Uh, but hopefully the church is starting to wake up and realize that racial reconciliation is not something that's going to be a checkmark type deal. It's it's a persistent, active thing to be involved with. There's not going to be, uh, more, more than likely, there's not going to be a moment or a day in your lifetime in which you can check that off the list. Yes, And to yes, some extent, yes. isn't that, should not Christians understand that better than most as we exist in kind of this uh, persistence of sanctification in this kind of non-ending process, you know, from the moment that we are saved to the end of of our days here on earth, we understand the concept of work that does not have a finishing point in this lifetime. And so racial reconciliation should fit so perfectly into that theological understanding. And yet, uh, you know, historically the church has kind of failed, but, you know, is, is that playing a tone into people's kind of waking up and understanding of what, what the challenge or what the call to arms truly is here? That's, that's a huge point. And, and, and we got to bring this up more and more. I think, you know, part of the reason why Protestant evangelicals missed the boat on the civil rights movement and so much before and after that is this idea of comfort. So it comes down to the fact that we are in a social system. That social, that social system has been largely created by and for white people. And therefore it works, right? Um, it, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the giraffe and the elephant analogy that Alexander Jun did in a previous podcast. If the house has been built for giraffes, and you invite an elephant into that house, yeah. well, the giraffe is, is going to have to go out of his way or her way to make that house comfortable um, for the elephant, which you know assumes a whole lot, assumes that the house, that the elephant doesn't have a house or anything like that. <laughs> but you, you get it. You get the point. Right. And, the, and so if it's working for me, why would I change it? And not even that bluntly. It's, it's, it's much more like, it's working for me, therefore I assume it works for everyone else. I think that's more the mentality that we find in the church. And so a lot of the questions I get are from congregation members or maybe deacons or maybe youth pastors. They're not the senior minister or they're not you know, in charge in any positional sense. And they're trying to move their leadership to start to care about issues of race and racial reconciliation. But the leaders, they recognize, yeah, this is important. I don't want us to be racist, but they don't really make moves. That's the C part. They don't make the commitment to change much because one reason I think is it's working for the systems working for them, racially speaking. And it doesn't seem as urgent if you are not a minority or if you are not in very close relationships with minorities to see, no, this is an everyday ongoing issue that the church not only has to confront, but it needs to take the lead on 
in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that issue of comfort is is massively important. You know, you mentioned staying back and answering a lot of questions, and of course, obviously, we don't want to. Uh, there's there's a there's a benefit to kind of closed door questions, right? And especially in a context like that, where you can you can kind of feel safe. So I don't want to you know make anybody feel uncomfortable by exposing some of the you know their their specific question that was asked or anything like that. But I am kind of curious in the general overall tone of the questions that were asked. You know, what kind of feedback slash even pushback at times? What are you hearing? So a, a, a lot of just what I mentioned, uh, folks are on board and they get it, but they don't necessarily have the influence to do anything about it in their local church. Um, so, th- so they're basically asking about like organizational and institutional change. Right. If this is important and we should do something about it, how do I get the ball rolling in my context? Those are always difficult questions because every church is different. You know, some churches just have a, a lead pastor and really no other leadership. Some churches have a lead pastor and deacons who, who serve as, you know, functionally serve as elders. Some, some churches have uh, elders with, you know, all equal votes, that kind of thing. So, and then the personalities are different. You know, it always depends on where the leader is. Are they hostile to the idea? Are they open to the idea and just looking for how to do it? So, a lot of the time is, is just spent with the people explaining their particular situation. Another question um, I get a lot is really the questions focused on how to build awareness. Okay, how do we how do we learn to understand this better? How do I, particularly as a white person, wade into this topic and not sound racist, say something racist, do something racist, come across as racist? Uh, how do I get in there and not mess up? Um, the easy, the short answer is you don't. <laughs> you, you, you always mess up. You always are going to get in there and say the wrong thing or the wrong thing at the wrong time or what it, whatever it might be. And African-Americans do that. That's not just an issue with being in the dominant culture. So, so in one sense, you just got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. At the same time, there are resources, which we've mentioned, you know, ad infinitum on this show. And I also posted on the website, uh, it's, it's a post called The Arc of Racial Reconciliation. So it's notes from my talk, along with the resources I, I referenced. Well, one thing I, I might add to that, uh, that that may be helpful. I mean, I, I I think the encouragement to not be complacent is huge. But I do also, th- I would also encourage to the best thing you can do if you feel uncomfortable or unprepared is maybe actually don't speak up, but be present and be listening and actively listening and actively, you know, learning. Because when you, when you have kind of, when you come at this subject matter with a, with a kind of a stance of kind of sitting down and shutting up, so to speak, then you will actually pick up and realize very comfortably when it is your turn to speak. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, it just makes sense, right? It's common sense. If I don't know about a topic, then I need to take a posture of listening mm, mm. for a season until I feel like um, I, I know the contours and the landscape of this particular topic. And so I absolutely 100% agree. You, you know, here's a, here's, I'm just going to speak bluntly. Here's a, here's a place where white people in general don't need to take the lead. Mm. They need to be comfortable with minorities taking the lead on topics of racial reconciliation. Now, this is not, hear me clearly, some form of this term I hate, ethnic Gnosticism. (laughs) This is not saying that you have to be black or Hispanic or Asian or whatever 
to speak about race. And if you're not, if, in other words, if you're white, you can't talk about it. That's not what I'm saying. Again, that's not what I'm saying. Um, what I am saying is know the subject material, right. know the subject matter, <laughs> know what you're talking about before you talk about it, especially if it's something you're coming into relatively lately. Uh, because the reality is this conversation has been going on for hundreds of years. And if you're just now starting to think in an intentional way about it, well, that's fine. But just listen, listen more than you speak initially. And then there are plenty of white folks who speak intelligently and cogently about race and can even correct minorities on certain things. But that's been after a, a long, deliberate season of developing their own awareness. And so I do invite folks to utilize RAN as a way to listen in on those conversations, whether it's reading the blog posts, listening to this podcast, or um, even going to our Facebook group and just seeing the comments people make and the responses. And you'll learn a whole lot that way. So great point, Bo. Listen. Uh, develop your awareness before you jump in the conversation. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, just to apply that to other things as well. I mean, look, there's a reason why. I tend to be more quiet on subject matter that gets deeply theological. I didn't go to RTS. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, there's, there's a reason why, why my voice is, is not prevalent, even on episodes that I'm on, when that's the case. There's also a reason why when Jamar starts talking about movies and, and <laughs> Hollywood that I, I, take, I turn on the mic and I jump in and inject myself into the episode. <laughs> so, you know, you know what you know. But, but if you want to be part of the conversation... Uh, learn first and uh, educate yourself. But, you know, Jamar, you actually give some practical uh, places, not just to diversify your opinion, so to speak, within the context of the reformed African-American community, but also just in terms of kind of the African-American community as a whole. Yeah. And that's where the, that's where the rub was. So, so I recommend, so one of the, one of the recommendations I have is to diversify your newsfeed. So whether that's social media, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, or just the like daily information sources you check, go to some sources that are uh, mainly concerned with African-American culture and, and entertainment and history and things like that. So along those lines, I recommended a few resources that are secular. And so you're not going to find, you know, you're going to find topics and people and headlines on there that agree with, with, uh, homosexuality that 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 are encouraging you know abortion or Planned Parenthood you're gonna find those things that are patently against historic biblical Christianity so I'm not recommending these resources as as, as spiritually edifying I'm recommending them because they speak to what dr. Ellis calls core concerns if you want to know what certain segments of black populations are talking about these are some resources you can go to, but I, I think I, I don't know, maybe I need to be more careful about just, just saying like, this is, this is going to be some controversial stuff, some things that as Christians we don't agree with. I did say that in the presentation, but um, I just want to make clear, I'm not recommending this for spiritual ed edification. I'm recommending this just to develop broader awareness from some sources that in the Reformed tradition we may not have ever even heard of. You can you can be aware of what's going on outside of the realm of the church, if you will, uh, but also understand that it's going on in the realm of the world, which is in, in God's creation. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, it, right. I mean, here's can I just say this? My question is, what is our reformed theology good for? What is our reformed theology good for? I 
personally think one of the reasons why I loved and still love Reformed theology is it is such a clear framework. The boundaries are stark and sharp because we stick to the Bible as best we can. Therefore, we know what is righteous, what is unrighteous, what is biblical, what is unbiblical. And then that's when I ask the question, well, what's it good for? Because you can use that framework to say, well, there's so much stuff out there that's unbiblical and doesn't agree with with what we believe. So I'm going to retreat from it and, and only immerse myself in those resources that I agree with. Or you can say, listen, I'm armed with this framework, mm-hmm. with this grid or this lens. And therefore, I can engage and interact with all kinds of material. And I can do that confidently because I know where my boundaries are. And I'm not going to be swayed or persuaded by fancy sounding words or, or arguments because if it doesn't accord with the Bible, then I'm not going there. But that doesn't mean I can't read it right. <laughs> or, or peruse it or engage or interact with it or that there isn't some truth to it because we believe God is sovereign, so sovereign, in fact, that he can work through unbelievers through something called common grace um, and, and that all truth is God's truth. So, you know, for me, that, that encourages engagement with um, resources that are, that are, you know, maybe not Christian. Well, and it, it hopefully puts them some things in perspective, I, I would imagine, just because, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of these headlines that, that tend to rub people the wrong way within, you know, that, that comfortable bubble of the church that we were kind of referring to earlier, uh, if you if you're if you have a kind of a, a more diverse understanding of what's going on in the world, and I don't just mean the world as in America. I mean, you know, if if yeah. when you're being told that you know the church is under siege because of you know this new litigation on this community or such and such, uh, as opposed to you know overseas where Christians are literally being slaughtered for their faith. It, yes, I mean, there's you know when you have a more uh, expanded overview of what's going on in both in the world and in the church your priorities should rightly shift to, to go against what has been the narrative of comfort within the church. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, w- once you're exposed to new material, that's, that's what I'm, that's the case I'm making yeah. that, that yeah. when you become aware, uh, that changes your mindset and perceptions and, and really you need all three. So awareness, you know, it, 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 just the facts of a situation you know, you're learning about the persecution of Christians in Iraq. You're learning about the the historic atrocities that African Americans experienced under race-based chattel slavery or Jim Crow segregation. That does something. But then it does something even more when you put a person to it. And so what I said in the presentation is this. Reconciliation is incarnational. Reconciliation is incarnational. It's enfleshed, and Christ is our example. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here you have God's promise of reconciliation, which he made to us all the way back in Genesis 3.15. That promise of reconciliation became a person who is Jesus Christ. And it's when we see Jesus Christ and we have a personal encounter with him that we understand the gospel and we have vertical reconciliation with God and it inspires and compels us to have reconciliation with our neighbor. And that's what leads to the commitment part. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about the fact that we know the cards are stacked against 
different people group for for no other reason than the language or their skin color or their geography. What are we going to do about the fact that our churches remain as segregated today as they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Um, and so on that level, Christians need to commit. But it's so interesting. People's minds change so dramatically when they have a friendship, a relationship with someone of a different race. Uh, for so many people, especially folks in the majority who I've talked to, that's been the hinge. That's been the lever that helped them um, put it all together and commit to doing something. You know, the, the quote unquote one minority friend or, or you know, one other friend. Uh, I mean, it's a good stepping stone, but I don't think it should be the goal by any stretch of the imagination because, you know, and this... Honestly, this this could be an episode unto itself. I mean, I, I believe I, I don't know if it was Ran or or maybe it was the Pass the Mic group. Somebody was talking. I wrote about kind of the um, you know, oh my one black friend agrees with me or or something of that. Right. Like what was? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this? Yeah, you've got you've got this perspective that's probably shared more widely among folks in the dominant culture and is is very rarely espoused by anyone who's a minority. But then you do find that one minority who does agree with you and say, look, see, therefore all black people should agree with me. Something yeah. like that. That that might be an episode unto itself at some point. I'll yeah. tell you what. Yeah. I did reference a study uh, by the Public Religion Research Institute that says um, white people have 91 white friends and one each of basically every other race. So including you got one black friend, basically. Um, and so that creates certain problems, obviously. Right. But that's not to lump white people as having the problem like attracts like. So every racial group is going to have more friends within their own racial or ethnic group. No. Yeah. What is uh, the BD reference? Something uh uh, I've heard him reference a, a study a couple of times where he says that, you know, uh, statistically black people have like what point something Asian friends. Like, yes, <laughs> like not yes, even one. Yes. Yeah. So, so in that same study, it said blacks have, I think eight white friends. It, it, it's, it's taking it out of a hundred people. And so right. 83 would be black. And then I think it was like eight or nine would be white, but zero Asian. <laughs> so, man, Everybody's got work to do. So, so that's a great point because according to our natural affiliations, that's what happens. We end up with homogenous social networks, which then end up giving us homogenous mindsets. But we have to do something unnatural or rather supernatural to bust up those social circles. And we have to cross those lines because of the gospel. And not just for the sake of diversity, but for the sake of spreading the gospel truth to people of all tribes and languages and nations. So, so the gospel compels us to do something far, far different than our own kind of natural sociological wiring would yeah. have us do. All right, man. Well, great, uh, great discussion. Glad that you're back uh, in town. I'm, I'm glad that it was such a, a, a blessed experience. It sounds like uh, some very, you know, I've, I've been reading the tweets coming in from folks that were just uh, really uh, just... Uh, just, I don't know, man, felt, felt very blessed by your, uh, by, by your breakout and, um, you know, look forward to seeing what, what comes from it. 
And uh, hopefully we'll have you back in studio next week. That's the plan. That's the plan. I apologize for the audio. I know you're an audio connoisseur. Mm-hmm. Uh, best we could do today, but hopefully, hopefully the content was so rich that people will <laughs> will only come away savoring the the knowledge. That's all right. The con- the great thing is, man, the content's always so rich. So people are always uh, uh, they're they're coming from you for you guys. And when the audio sounds bad, they blame the producer as they should. So <laughs> oh, okay, good, good, good. Yes, well. So I'll take Big the Big bro hug to you. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> we want to thank Jamar Tisby for calling in for this week's episode. You can find more from uh, him and specifically uh, some notes from his talk at T4G this year uh, at randnetwork.org. You can, of course, join the new Facebook group, Pass the Mic. Look for it on Facebook. It is a closed group, uh, so you'll need to uh, apply to join, although I think applying just means click a button and, and then you're in yep. it. You can also follow Jamar Tisby on Facebook at Jamar Tisby. If you want to, you can follow me on Twitter at the real Bo York. Our producer for the show has been Bo York. Our guest slash co-host has been Jamar Tisby. And I've been your host slash producer Bo York. And we'll see you next time on the next Pass the Mic. Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.